0: Hi! Welcome to the Historiatic Podcast. You are listening to the first episode of the first season. I am Abigail. I'm your host, and this is my podcast. It's a passion project of mine. I've always wanted to start a podcast, but I never really knew what topic I should do it about. Should I do it about you know, my own stories for my own life, or should I make something more informational? And and then I was like, you know what, let's do history. But history is such a large and vast topic. And I really wanted to cover interesting periods in history, well, at least that I find interesting interesting. And I wanna share that with you because I know so many people who just don't like history or they become disillusioned with it because you know, they've they've had a bad experience in history class, or they just feel like it's not for them, and I truly believe that history is for everybody, and it's such an interesting topic, and I really hope that you get that out of this podcast. Um, so this first season, we'll be talking about the American bride trade between the United States and Great Britain in the 19th and 20th century. And so basically what happened during this time is young, wealthy, young American heiresses in New York society. It was so great for your name and your family's name if you had a royal title. And so what these women would do is they would go over for the English social season and they'd be presented to the court and they would go to all these different parties and by the end of that summer, they would be engaged and they would get married to a duke or a prince or an earl and hold a title. And and they would be married, they were marrying him to European aristocracy. And you're like, what is this? This isn't purely for love. No, of course it wasn't. These were marriages of of clauses. These were very 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 rarely a marriage between lovers and you know their husbands their husbands families their husbands estates would be gaining cash from these heiresses you know they would be paying their parents be paying a dowry for the american girl to marry her british prince and oftentimes this dowry would be huge and what was going on in britain at this time was a depression. Estates were just, they were not bringing in an income due to an agriculture, an agricultural recession, recession, um, in England, in England at this time. And they really, really needed cash because they had been partying in these estates for hundreds of years, and they just weren't keeping up with them. And all of a sudden, it all fell on them at once. They weren't making money because of the agricultural recession. You know, they couldn't pay for the upkeep of their homes. And a lot of these estates were being sold. And, you know, if you ever watch Downton Abbey, that was a big, big topic in the later seasons if they were going to sell Downton. And, you know, they didn't have enough money to keep it up because it was getting increasingly hard to pay for the upkeep of the house and pay for the staff. And that's why a lot of homes these days over in England are turned into wedding venues or, you know, conference halls. They aren't being inhabited as much. And that is definitely a remnant of these Gilded Age brides. And so I think before we go into this, and let me explain this. It's a four-episode season, and each episode we will be talking about a different American princess. So this episode will be talking about one of the first American princesses, as they are called, Jenny Jerome. Jenny um, will be coming up later in the podcast, but I feel like to first understand what this whole bride trade, called the Transatlantic American Bride Trade, what it was, you have to understand the Gilded Age, you have to understand the economic situation and social situation of... Um, the United States, and Great Britain at that time. So I'm talking about the second half of the American Industrial Revolution. And the Industrial Revolution was just, it was such a great boom for the, for the, for the United States. You know, people are moving to cities and the rich would just get wealthier and wealthier and wealthier. And we actually have a lot to owe to them. There's a lot of philanthropy that went on during this time. You know, a lot of our country's um, older universities, they were really fueled and fostered from Gilded Age money. The Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City was a product of Gilded Age money from these wealthy philanthropists. A lot of museums that you see, a lot of institutions for... Women during the day were influenced by these Gilded Age money tycoons. So, if 40% of Americans moved to and lived to a city during this time. And, you know, a lot of East Coast cities and Midwest cities like St. Louis and Chicago, they were growing, and they were growing more and more important. You know, New York City, Boston, Philadelphia, these cities were hubs of industry and mills, and the population would just double. There would, there was no room for the volume of people that were coming in. And at the same time, there was an immigration boom. Many European immigrants moved to the eastern United States, and cities were becoming hot spots for slums, as they were not prepared for how many people. So if you don't know what a slum is, I would love to explain to you. <laughs> so slums are they're kind of like projects, but they're like 19th century projects, and they're just not a nice place to live. They were often overrun by rats and cockroaches and just all types of vermin and just gross, and it was just, there was feces everywhere, and it wasn't cleaned properly, and it was just overcrowded. It wasn't a nice place to live, and so, you know, Many of these immigrants coming from Europe, they were unskilled. They, they didn't have. They some of them didn't even speak English, so that set them back a lot. You know, some of these people were doing really really well over in Europe, and they had businesses. But when they came here, they didn't. They couldn't have that. They didn't have that, and it discouraged a lot of immigrants. However, our Gilded Age tycoons they loved this, because. Because they were so innocent to what America was at the time, you know, employers abused them. They would make them work dangerous jobs for long hours. They didn't pay them a lot, and they didn't really have benefits. And, you know, I think we often hear about the Lowell's, the Lowell Mills in Massachusetts, where there was a lot of strikes, and a lot of people were hurt, and a lot of people died, um... As a result of these casualties from the mills and, you know, they were getting paid so little and this led to a huge pay gap in in society in the Gilded Age. Rich elites, they lived these luxurious lives and they had a waitstaff and they had these beautiful homes that were just huge and they didn't really care about the poor's struggle. And the poor, these immigrants, you know, blue collar folks, their struggles grew larger and larger, and the rich grew richer and richer, and the gap between rich and poor just became very, very bright during this era in American history. I think there's sometimes where, you know, like in the Great Depression, there wasn't, there wasn't really a fine line between rich and poor. Everybody was kind of just struggling, or um, I guess you'd say during World War II, there, once again, there wasn't really a fine line between who had wealth. I feel like during the Gilded Age, it was a it was a great time to be alive if you were Cornelius Cornelius Vanderbilt, and you owned some shares in a railroad company. But if you were from Eastern Europe and you were an immigrant and you lived in a New York City slum in Queens, it it didn't really work out for you. It wasn't really working out. And at this time, labor unions were becoming more and more popular and strikes were becoming common. And so employers were very, very against labor unions because unions fight for rights and unions want better situations. They want the most that they can be given. They want the highest wages possible. And you know what? These labor unions were at all, they were right. They deserved these things. And what's really sick about What's really, really sick about these employers is that, you know, they would block out pre-existing workers who were crossing the picket line, and they would go right behind those picketers' backs, and they would hire other unsuspecting employees and immigrants to perform those sweatshop the, the sweatshop jobs. These employees create a blacklist, and, you know, if so, if you ever brought up Or questioned the ethics as an employee, your name would be marked on this blacklist, and you, it became very, very hard for you to find a job after that because this list would go around and they'd be like, oh, nope, John Smith, I don't think so. I don't think you're gonna get a work, you're gonna get a work job here, okay? A work job. That's a new one. I'm gonna start calling, yeah, it's gonna start being called a work job. That That was just me talking. disregard that um so the gilded age what happened and why it was so there was so much money going around is because of the industrial revolution number one and the transcontinental railroad was completed in 1869 and so railroad tycoons emerged as the titans as the richest of the rich in the gilded age these men often conspired in shady deals with the fed to create their empires and we see a lot of their names like still existing today the, i already mentioned the vanderbilts i love the vanderbilts they're terrible people however they are crazy crazy smart at what they do um <laughs> they're not good but the, they're terrible but cornelius knew how to get there anderson cooper his mother gloria was a Vanderbilt her um her mother and father engaged in a huge custody case actually when she was a young girl and that was a national headline for some time but Anderson Cooper is a modern day Vanderbilt and you can still see the Vanderbilts have still are still making their mark on american society Anderson Cooper is the he's like the head guy at CNN he is the face of CNN he makes his rounds you you see him a lot i mean The Vanderbilts are still very, very powerful, and that is because of their railroad shares. They were railroad tycoons, and they are still embedded in American society. So, you know, they used fraud, they used violence, political connections, intimidation. They turned a blind eye to a law. If that law was going to kind of like not really work out for them, they were like, nah, I'm good. And they just... But they weren't they weren't going to follow those laws and that's okay because they were best friends with their populist friends in government so a term that has been kind of coined for these railroad tycoons they're called robber barons and they relentlessly sought wealth no matter the cost these the robber barons they dominated every single industry after the railroad it really took off for them. You know, oil, banking, sugar, liquor, meatpacking, textiles, you name it, they had their mark there, okay? And there's a clause that historians find, is that these tycoons, although they were terrible, and they exploited people, and they were greedy, and they were not following the law they were incredibly generous ph- philanthropists they mentioned earlier they donated to the country and really fostered a culture of arts and allowed this country for really one of the first times in its history to start focusing on something else than sustain sustaining and longevity they were allowing the country's people to go out to a museum on a Sunday, or go out to a park, and, you know, they were trying to make America, make America great again. They were trying to make America something that could rival their European counterparts. And so, at this time, there was also a shift in women, and women were becoming more and more upset with their place in society and they didn't really enjoy, you know, being confined to the house. And upper class women who are married to these robber barons, they were becoming philanthropists too. They were, um, trying to aid the poor and they were fighting for the women's right to vote. And a lot of our suffragist movements really started in the Gilded Age. And, you know, we saw in the nineteen twenties women were given the right to vote. Um and a lot of that is because of these gilded age rich women. I, there's, that's the main thing that I hate about it. Is because these tycoons, they are just, they are very evil people. However, they also did like a lot of good for the country. So, with, I just, I, they're finding these loopholes. They were just very intelligent guys. But, uh, you know, just to wrap this up a little really quickly this little gilded age part the gilded age fell in ninety three, eighteen ninety three. 1893 the railroads just they failed and the bull market it crashed and the nation went under a recession for some time recessions are fun not really i recessions suck actually disregard that we're in a recession right now can we, can we talk about the coronavirus okay covid19 like i'm not scared of it I have asthma, so like I'll probably be put on a ventilator, it won't be good. Sorry Andy Cuomo. Um but I'm personally offended by it. Sorry. Sorry, COVID. Just what, whatever. You know what I mean? They had like plagues at this point, like typhoid and like typhus and cholera. Is it is it pronounced cholera? I've always said cholera see, this podcast is just going to be a lot of me saying random things. And now we're going to get back to the Gilded Age. So, like I said, the Gilded Age fell. However, the Gilded Age was a really, really good, about 30 years in American society where these heiresses are marrying into the British aristocracy. And like I mentioned earlier, these, the British aristocracy was going under a time of failure during America's Gilded Age. The British... Great Britain had already had a Gilded Age a little bit prior. And, um, they were, these wealthy estates were just, they were a little bit struggling. They were, they were the problem child, okay? So, while the Americans partied up, wealthy Britons, they were just, they were going on an Amer on, on American, an economic downturn. So, It's called the Great Depression of British Agriculture. If you've never heard of this before, that's probably okay, because this is probably going to be an American audience, and British history is not something that we usually study at all. However, the Great Depression of British Agriculture was a very, very substantial piece of history um, setting up a lot of Britain in a lot of ways, and we're going to talk about that later in the podcast. Um... And kind of the outcome of these American princesses. But the Great Depression of British agriculture, this is like the tenth time I'm saying it too. So the first half of the 19th century, it marked an era in England where rural landowners were among the wealthiest citizens in society, okay? You know, I read I read somewhere this fact that landowners were collectively growing almost ten millions acre ten million acres of grain a year, okay? So, by the late 19th century, the prospers of agriculture was failing the English, and a lot of these problems started with the 1846, um, repeal of the Corn Laws, which lifted tariffs for the idea of free trade in mind, and this worked great for city dwellers and people who didn't make, who didn't live in these big manor houses in the English countryside. Um, this... However, the American farmers, they couldn't keep up. The, um, not the Americans, the English farmers, the American farmers were doing great because they could grow all this grain and they could ship it cheaply and sell it cheaply at of price that people were going to buy in England and was cheaper than the English prices. And so English farmers no longer had a market for their grain and they weren't bringing in an income anymore. And these manor houses began to fall because that was oftentimes the aristocracy's way of income. So the Americans were getting richer and richer thanks to the Transcontinental Railroad, which could import them to docks in the East Coast from the Midwest. They would boat it over. was that a word? Boat it? Boat it? Sail it over? Sail it! They would sail it over to England and sell it. And... That is a direct result of the Gilded Age, and this also contributed to the direct effect of the Great Depression of British agriculture. So, the British estates, they began to fall into disarray, there was just no money left, and here's another fact for you, between 1809 and and 1979, is that 1979? I think I had a typo, let's go check. I'm saying 1979, y'all, y'all, y'all. I think it's between 1809 and 1879, 88% of English millionaires were landowners. But then, yeah, it's 1879. But then after 1879, this fell to about 33%. And so there was just a huge, huge, huge discrepancy between, you know, what these landowners they weren't making money anymore and their means of income at this point was marriage and gaining a income through marriage through their dowry oftentimes um, if you were if you were like a rich girl say we're going to take Jenny Jerome we're going to talk about her next what her father did is he gave her an annual income think it was about a hundred thousand dollars and he was giving her money every single year he gave her and her husband a dowry it was a huge sum just they needed they needed to import money somehow and they found this through the loophole of marriage and what was great for them is that they were going to be marrying an American girl. Ooh, that's like a Carrie Underwood song. Maybe I'll play that for y'all. Actually, copyright. So I can't. psych. But here's our first American princess. And you're going to be like, you just talked about the Gilded Age and the Great Depression of British agriculture with the better half of 15 minutes. And yes, I did. I did. I completely did. And now we're going to be talking, finally, about our first American princess. So if you're still here, I thank you because you're a great person. Um, so... The Gilded Age- you need to understand the Gilded Age and the Great Depression of British Agriculture to understand the need for American princesses and why they're important to society and why this is cool to learn about. I also kind of just like to say the word princess and they all looked so cool. Like, the dresses during this era and, like, the Victorian era was- the Victorian era was popping off, like- It slaps. This was a good era for fashion. Thank you, Queen Victoria. But Jenny Jerome was the first American princess, more or less. And she was born in Brooklyn in 1854, in January. She was the second of four daughters. Her younger sister, Camille, however, died in childhood. She was raised in New York for the early years of her childhood. But then she moved to Paris, where... She started to emerge into society and then enter British society as an adult. She was an amateur pianist, actually, and she was trained by Chopin's friend. If you have ever played piano or you like music history, Chopin, you know Chopin, okay? I love Chopin. That guy, he's one of the greatest composers of all time. Like, he's my favorite. And... It was often said that if Jenny played, if she practiced even more, she could have gotten to a concert level of piano. You know, she was well-read. She was in, She was a striking beauty in the courts. People would just turn their heads when Jenny would walk into a room. So what kind of happened here is her father and mother almost had this falling out. So her father, Leonard, he was a financer. He worked in stocks. And he was very, very important to the Gilded Age. He was called the King of Wall Street. So, his wealth grew to an estimated $10 million. He even was a shareholder of the New York Times. He bought a quarter of it. Excuse me. He was known to be feisty, flamboyant, charming. He actually studied at Princeton a little bit. However, he didn't really do well in math. Like, oops. And he also really couldn't pay for it. So he transferred to Union College. He had deep roots in New York, especially in upstate New York. And what happened is he met Clara. So when he switched to Union College from Princeton, he started working with his um, uncle, actually, in law. And, you know, from law, he went into finance and he did really, really well there. And he was really, it was just a born, he was born with the natural talent for stocks and being a stockbroker. And he grew and he, he amassed this huge fortune. And so he moved down to New York. He was really doing well down there. And at one of these balls, he met Clarissa, who went by Clara. And she was an heiress to a minor fortune. But that didn't matter because they fell in love. They actually married for love in 1849. And he was Leonard was elected to be the American consul to Italy. Therese, I think it's called Triste. We're going to go with Triste, right? They were only there for 18 months with Clara. However, Clara grew fascinated with European society and the courts. And this fascination never left her. And that's one of the contributing factors to why... Jenny ended up marrying into, the um, British aristocracy. So you know when they went back and they had more kids, and they grew a little bit older. However, Leonard. Leonard was a cheater, is that sad? But, he's a guy. It's just it's what they do. So near, so this so people found out and, near gossip got back to Clara. And she discovered that Leonard had been cheating on her with two women that historians can agree on. I'm sure there was probably more. However, there was two main mistresses. And it got so scandalous that he had an illegitimate child. It was an illegitimate child as a result of one of these liaisons. This illegitimate daughter was Minnie Hawk. She was a future opera singer and Clara and Leonard actually took her in when she was financially dependent on them for a while. However, Clara came face-to-face with one of the mistresses. Her name was Fanny Ronalds. If you were ever... So I'm, like, low-key obsessed with 1800s in America, and Fanny was just such a popular name then, but I've only ever heard the word... Like, read books about whenever there's a character in a book with the name Fanny, set in the 1800s. She's never, ever been a main character. This is making me think of that. Fanny Ronalds, the mistress. I'm like, they're always side characters who have these, like, crazy cool stories. And I feel like they're often, like, mean and nasty. Or, like, they have, like, a vendetta out, out to at someone. But the Fannies are always so interesting, and that's what I thought of. So if you want to go, and you want to meet someone interesting, go meet a Fanny. And she said My dear, I understand how you feel. He is so irresistible. Leonard, I've seen photos, he ain't he ain't that bad, okay? Oh, sorry guys, but like Leonard was getting it done. Um so basically what happened is Claire was highly she was highly embarrassed with this whole situation. And, you know, modern scholars were like, no, no, she just wanted to go to Paris because she liked the culture. I'm like, no. I'm agreeing with the other modern scholars that saying she went there because she was embarrassed. And so in 1860, she went over with the girls. And she actually brought she actually brought Leonard over. And she was like, Leonard, here's the deal. We're staying. And Leonard was like, okay, y'all can stay, but I'm going back to New York City. So... Clara and the girls were over there, and she was presenting them to French society, and, you know, these girls were becoming really, really popular in the court, and Clara became obsessed with their position in the court, and who they were, and what their title was going to be, so the interesting thing is that Clara and Leonard actually remained a couple through this, and, you know, Leonard would, he would write letters with Clara, they always, um, maintained a correspondence through mail however he returned to new york and i assume he probably continued to cheat continued to cheat on her there but um clara daughter clarita little claire little clara she debuted into french society and jenny was gonna debut in 1870 jenna jerome uh, who we're we talking about today But the Franco-Prussian War put this on hold, and the last French monarch was exiled to Great Britain. And so the French court was like, oh no. So they got really, really scared, and they had to disperse from France. And the Jerome family ended up making their way to Isle of Wight. And Leonard actually had ancestors come to America from the Isle of Wight. Previously. I thought that was a fun little tip there. But it was here on the Isle of Wight that Jenny was introduced to Lord Randolph Churchill. Yeah. Churchill. You may recognise that last name. So she met him. Isle of Wight was it was a playground for British elites and they would you know they would summer there and they would just they loved it. So Randolph was the second son to the seventh Duke of Marlborough. And when they were introduced, they, they married for love. They fell in love and Randolph proposed three days after the introduction. So the families on both sides were, they were not pleased with the situation. The Duke didn't like Leonard and called him a vulgar kind of man. The drums were a part of the new class of Americans. They were self-made and something that the Duke did not care for as he came from old money. So the Duke finally relented, thanks to the Prince of Wales, who was actually well acquainted with the Jeromes. And he was like, nah, dude, the Jeromes, they be cool. You know, Leonard might be, like, a bad guy, and, like, you don't know his wife, and he's a little bit crazy. However, it's cool, yo. And so, most importantly, in this whole situation, one of the main contributing factors, even more than the Prince of Wales, was that Leonard was willing to provide a generous dowry, and the dowry agreement between Leonard and the Duke was very, very modern in the sense that Jenny would have her own personal income separate from um the money he was gonna give to the couple each year and to the estate. And so their wedding was on April fifteenth of eighteen seventy four, and it was just the social event of the season. However, there was a little controversy here because there was rumors that Jenny was pregnant at their wedding with their first child, who was born in November of that year. Um, we'd have heard of their child. He's a very, very prominent member of British society. This child went on to become... This child became Sir Winston Churchill, Prime Minister of England. Yeah. Jenny Jerome was an American heiress from Brooklyn, and she was the mother of Sir... Winston Churchill. I know, I know what you're thinking, what? He had an American mother? Yeah, he did. Crazy. Americans be getting it done. Okay. So, moving on from that point, the dowry was very, very crucial for Randolph. And um, what we're gonna get into it later in the series is why these dowries are so um, crucial to these families, because, you know, in this instance, Randolph didn't have an income like, what? The, what, Randolph, he had a career in Parliament, he was a member of the House of Lords, however, it was an honorary position, and, like, he didn't really, he didn't have, they didn't pay him, however, this was, it was kind of okay, because in 1886, he was promoted to a cabinet position, which was paid, but after six months, he quit on a principle that he was going to be asked back, but they never asked him back, and they fell into, like, They had no money besides, like, what Jenny was getting. However, they were members of aristocracy, and so they were expected to live these rich, opulent lives, and so they fell into debt. And Randolph died in 1895, and Jenny was a widow at 40. But don't you worry. Jenny was having fun over in England, okay? She didn't go home. She didn't go home. No, 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 no. She got married two more times to younger men. She was a cougar. She remarried five years after Randolph's death in 1900 to George Cornwallis West. George Cornwallis West was actually only a month older than Winston, Winston Churchill. And so, at this point, Jenny was just in so, so much debt. And she kept on living these extravagant lives. And George wasn't contributing. He wasn't helping her pay off her debt he was also, like, going along with it, just, it's frustrating to me, because Jenny had an opportunity to not go into debt, and she did, like, she was given $100,000 a year by her papa, okay, $100,000 a year, and that, and, and money then, okay, that's, It's a huge sum. That's a generous, it's a very, very generous sum to give someone. And she was just wasting it on, like, shoes. Listen, I get it, but just, come on. You're not the queen, honey. You're not even, she wasn't even duchess. She was, like, Lady, Lady Jenny Churchill, Lady Randolph Churchill, Okay, she was the she was the wife of the second son, so she didn't she didn't just need to be living that living that luxurious. Okay, so at this point she was like Winston, what do I do? And Winston was like, you know what? I'm gonna help you out. Let's write a magazine, and they named it the Anglo-Saxon Review. Any German history nerds out there, you get that joke? Oh snap! It's not really a joke. It's actually the name of their magazine. So. But the magazine ceased to exist after Jenny turned to writing books and plays instead. So she was a writer. She was a writer by, you know, that was her passion. She's never formally trained, however, she really, really enjoyed it. And, you know, she, her later years were just shrouded and struggled to meet, to make, to make ends meet financially. She, she continued to live opulently. And she grew into a creative person and wrote a play called His Borrowed Plums. Now, once again, we have a story of infidelity within a marriage. And this time, it's actually funny. We're actually both funny, I'm sorry. But this one is really funny. So Jenny wrote the play, His Borrowed Plums. And it was produced and it starred Mrs. Patrick Campbell, who was a huge, huge star at this point um, at the turn of the century in Britain, and Mrs. Patrick Campbell began an affair with no one other than George Cornwallis West, Jenny's husband. Yeah. So, Jenny ended up getting a divorce from George once she found out about this, because George and Mrs. Campbell fell in love with each other, and they ended up marrying, and they were- They remained together until... It was either George's death or Campbell's death, but they were a love match. I don't... I think what happened is George... Campbell was also older than George, so he obviously was into older women. But George wasn't really in love with Jenny. I think he was... He liked the illusion of her, and he liked the idea of her. However, his true love was... (laughs) this is patrick campbell from his borrowed plums that he cheated on his wife with and then i just i just found that hilarious but jenny was like you know what it didn't work out the first time because he died it didn't work out the second time because he cheated on me and then married the girl that he cheated on me with but you know what maybe it will work the third time so she married montague pippin porch and once again she was a cougar Montague was three years younger than Winston, and he was an officer in the British Army. So, (laughs) you know what, Jenny's, I just, I don't even get it with her. She's crazy. She's just nuts. But Jenny ended up dying pretty young. She died at 67 in her London home. Story goes that she slept on the stairs and these new high-heeled shoes she got. She was trying to show them off, and she slept, and... It got so bad that her left leg was amputated and then a hemorrhage developed in her artery uh, after the amputation and she died because of the hemorrhage. And so, isn't it crazy? She died because of a hemorrhage? Because she was trying to show off her new high heels? Yeah, yeah, Jenny's life was like, holy cow. So she was buried in Oxford, Oxfordshire next to Randolph on the family's estate. But after her death, she maintained a strong legacy. She left a lot of debt, and these debts fell on Montague and her youngest son, Jack, who she had with um, Randolph. And there was a, one of her family friends wrote in correspondence with someone that, Winston would cry that Jenny was dead, but Montague and Jack would have to pay the price of her debts. I'm like, I like slowly slipped into front of Jackson there, and I just thought, I just thought it was very funny how Winston did not take responsibility for the debt, and he left it upon Montague and Jack. Montague was married to her for like, just a few years, and younger brother, wow, Winston character development maybe not but i mean at the end of the day at the end of the day jenny was the first american princess she became lady randolph churchill and she was mother to one of the most influential members of parliament of the 20th century sir winston churchill so the next time you think of Winston Churchill, you're going to have to think of two things, and that is Gilded Age and the Great Depression of British Agriculture, and because of that, we ended up with Winston Churchill. And that is the end of episode one. Yeah, Jenny Jerome, she was crazy. She was a cougar. So y'all just listened to me go on for about 41 minutes now. Um, I just want to thank y'all for coming. I had a really fun time recording this. I hope that You stay tuned for episode two, which I think will be about Consuelo Vanderbilt, um, one of the, I believe she was the granddaughter of Cornelius Vanderbilt, who I talked about earlier in this podcast. But I'm very, very excited for the start of this podcast and for the future of it, and I hope you enjoyed learning about why the world is like it is today because of these random little niches in um, the history between the United States and Great Britain. I wish you all a happy weekend, and please tune in next time, and thank you for listening.